Well, I don't know about you, but whenever I get ready to study the book of Jonah, uh, whether that be by way of devotional reading or more recently, of course, in preparing for these messages on Sunday nights, uh, it can be somewhat of a frustrating process. A frustrating process, not so much in terms of frustrated in my own ability or inability or understanding or lack of understanding of the words that are given to us in this book. Uh, A frustrating process, certainly not in the sense of being frustrated with God for including this book in the canon of Scripture, but frustrating in the sense that this book is just so unpredictable. It's just an unpredictable book. And its unpredictability is, is almost exclusively due to the book's namesake, Jonah who himself is so unpredictable. It's not just me, right? You're picking up on this too? As we go chapter by chapter and section by section, to see what I mean, let's, let's trace our way back through this book, not so much focusing this time on events, but rather the person of Jonah. In other words, what, what is happening whenever we see that name, Jonah, appearing on the page of, of the book that bears his name? Well, when we were first introduced to Jonah, we saw that he was a prophet in Jonah 1.1 who received the word of the Lord. Now, that's an encouraging start. That means we have here this man of God, this spokesperson for God who received the word of God and apparently was now going to be this herald for God. Except he wasn't. And except he didn't. It didn't take us long for us to learn as we began our study of this book many months ago that this was no faithful prophet. Rather, this was a prophet who was on the run. God gave this command to Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach against the wickedness of that great city, but Jonah disobeyed. And he instead fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He did so by boarding this ship that was in Joppa, which was going to take him not to where the Lord wanted him to go, but rather where he wanted to go, to his own preferred destination. Now, the next time we encounter Jonah, he's sound asleep. He's sound asleep. There's been this storm, and then there's this commotion aboard the ship, and there are these pagan sailors crying out to their God. There's cargo being thrown into the sea. But Jonah couldn't be bothered by any of it. Jonah 1.5 says he was absolutely conked out. Verse 5 says Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lay down, and fallen sound asleep. So more consternation, more commotion ensued at that point. The ship's captain urged Jonah to get up. He urged Jonah to pray to his God. The sailors on board the ship cast lots to see why this storm had come upon them. The lot fell on Jonah. The sailors issue this series of rapid-fire questions to Jonah. And then we see Jonah surface again in Jonah 1.9, where he answers the sailors with this streak of smug self-assurance, which we can only be shocked by now, where he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Can't you just pick up a hint there of the prideful Pharisee of Luke 18. God, I thank you that I am just not like those other people, swindlers and unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. For Jonah, though, it was, thank the Lord, I'm not a pagan sailor like one of you. I'm a Hebrew. Not only that, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Quite the statement, quite the profession. Considering the fact that virtually everything else we see said of Jonah in this book suggests that he really did not fear the Lord. That's, by the way, a good reminder for each of us this evening to make sure that we're constantly checking that our practices match our profession. And if they don't, to be humble enough to admit that our profession might have been hollow to begin with. So we already have this picture of of Jonah being this shady figure, this slippery figure, this not-so-forthright figure. And with this less-than-flattering portrayal of Jonah, it's now rounded out further the next time we encounter him in verse 12, where after being asked by the sailors what they should do with him to stop this sea that was storming around them, Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Now, I beat this one to death in an earlier sermon, so I won't belabor it here this evening. But while Jonah's words here sound on the surface like they're noble and sacrificial, Jonah here appears to be offering himself up to be killed so that the sailors' lives might be spared. This actually wasn't a noble act at all. Because Jonah's words ultimately were still rooted and grounded in Jonah's disobedience. He was still refusing at this point to go to Nineveh. He was still insisting on doing things Jonah's way rather than God's way. 
The next time we see Jonah mentioned by name is in Jonah 1.15, as he's being thrown into the sea. And then after that, in verse 17, we're told that a God-appointed great fish swallowed Jonah. And in that same verse, it says he was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So by the end of chapter one of the book of Jonah, we're all thinking, to some degree, Jonah's kind of an awful guy. I don't think I'm going to name my next son Jonah. Why is this book in the Bible anyway? Well, then we get to Jonah chapter 2, which we covered in a single sermon, and things seem to take a turn for the better. Since Jonah, while he's in the stomach of the fish, at least turns to God in prayer. That's what it says in Jonah 2.1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And as I noted, when we went through Jonah's prayer several Sunday nights ago now, this wasn't a prayer for salvation by Jonah. Rather, this was a prayer of thanks by Jonah to God for delivering him from the depths, for sending that great fish to him to swallow him up at just the right moment before he sunk down to the ocean floor and perished. And then we're told here in verse 10 of chapter 2 that the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. All right, so what we have so far is this very disobedient prophet, Jonah, in chapter 1, We have this very thankful, prayerful Jonah in Jonah chapter 2. Now, when we get over to Jonah chapter 3, which we've covered in more recent weeks, things continue to be continuing on this upward trend for Jonah as as the Lord gives Jonah this second chance, this second bite at the apple, this second opportunity to go to Nineveh and preach against its wickedness. And this time, Jonah complied. To catch us up, let's look at the first four verses Of Jonah chapter 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So God gives Jonah this second command. Jonah receives this second command, this second word of the Lord. But this time, we're encouraged because he doesn't rebel against the Lord. Instead, he obeys the command as he cries out against Nineveh and its wickedness. Not bad. Way to go, Jonah. Things are turning around. Well, in the rest of chapter 3, we saw that Jonah sort of drops out of the narrative. And the, the focus is now more on the repentance of the people of Nineveh the repentance and the decree of the king of Nineveh, and then God's relenting and withdrawing his burning anger against Nineveh. Now, if you would, and I know it's a little bit late in the day, engage with me in a bit of a thought exercise for for just a moment. Imagine if the book of Jonah had ended here, at Jonah chapter 3. Wouldn't it be, from a human vantage point, just about the perfect story? You have in Jonah chapter 1 sort of the bad boy protagonist. The main character is kind of the bad boy. He rides a Harley and makes bad decisions, right? That kind of guy. In Jonah chapter 2, you have the turning point, the wake-up call, you could say. And then in Jonah chapter 3, you have this story of redemption. The bad boy gets his act together. He cleans up his act. He cleans up his life and starts doing what is right. And then not only that, the people in Nineveh repent. God relents. No losers, only winners. Everyone lives happily ever after, roll credits. It's perfect. Well, Hollywood might buy that script, but that's not where it ends. We have one more chapter to go, chapter four, where we're going to see that this story does not quite have a fairy tale ending. Instead, we find ourselves, at least I find myself, reading what happens in chapter four and, and banging our heads on the desks in frustration over the stubborn and selfish, childish ways of this so-called man of God. See what I mean? If you're not there already, turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We'll cover the first five verses of this chapter tonight. In Jonah 4, 1 through 5, God's word reads, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. 
the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. The title of this evening's message is The Reaction. And it could just as easily have been stated in the, in the plural, the reactions, because in this section of Jonah, we really do see three reactions and they're building on each other. First, in verses one through three, we see Jonah's reaction to God's turning from his, his relenting anger toward Nineveh, which was brought about by the repentance of that city. So we're going to title that part of tonight's sermon, Jonah's Petulant Prayer. Second, in verse four, we see God react to Jonah's petulant prayer with a question. We're going to title that part of the sermon for verse four, God's interested inquiry. And then in verse five, we don't really see a verbal response from Jonah to God's question. Instead, we see him ignoring God's question and voting with his feet as he leaves Nineveh and sits outside the city gates to see what's going to happen to this city. We're going to title that part of the sermon, Jonah's sulking squat. So it's petulant prayer, interested inquiry, sulking squat. I love you, Sunday night crowd, and your patience with me in my lame alliteration. All right, let's get into Jonah's petulant prayer. Here are verses one through three again. It says, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. So this section begins with the words, but it greatly displeased Jonah. And that first word, but, is a contrasting conjunction. It's a seemingly insignificant little word, but it's actually carrying a ton of weight because it's highlighting the contrast between God's compassion in the last verse of Jonah chapter three toward Nineveh and Jonah's displeasure. It's highlighting that little word, but the contrast between God's turning from his anger in Jonah 3.10 and Jonah's turning to anger in Jonah chapter four. As the text here says, but it greatly displeased Jonah. What did? What greatly displeased Jonah. Well, well, all of it. He was actually displeased, get this, with the effectiveness of his own preaching. That's what made him upset. He was displeased that the people of Nineveh believed in God, his God. He was displeased that they had called a fast and put on sackcloth. He was displeased that the king of Nineveh himself had repented. He was displeased that the same king had issued this decree mandating that everyone in the city turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. He was displeased that the Ninevites had in fact turned from their wicked way. And he was displeased over the fact that as Jonah 3.10 says, God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. So Jonah was displeased, greatly displeased even. In fact, the, the literal Hebrew here where it says he was greatly displeased, it says it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. What? That's really a play on words, tying back to what we see in Jonah 3.10, where the Ninevites there were turning from their wicked ways, from, from their evil. And the idea here is to, is to Jonah now, as he prays in Jonah 4.1, the Ninevites turning from their evil was to him, to Jonah, itself evil. It greatly displeased him that the Ninevites had repented. It, it greatly displeased him that God had relented. And not only that, he was angry. Look at the end of verse one. It says, and he became angry. The so-called man of God was angry. And this is where the, the frustration that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon ensues. Because just when it seemed like Jonah had turned a corner now it seems like he's in this darker place and this deeper hole than he was at the beginning of this book. You see, the displeasure and the anger that Jonah was experiencing him is laid out here intentionally with contrast, as contrast, with such intentional contrast to the depths of God's mercy which are being shown throughout this book. The entire storyline of the book of Jonah up to this point, and you can see it as you read section after section, is God's mercy. God shows his mercy to the sailors who were on that same ship with Jonah. 
he shows his mercy to Jonah himself by causing that fish to swim up to him and swallow him up. He shows his mercy to Jonah by giving him a second opportunity to, to preach to wicked Nineveh. He shows mercy to the Ninevites themselves as he causes the inhabitants of that, of that wicked city to repent, which we saw caused God to relent of the burning anger he had toward them. If there was a series of events, in other words, that should have led a prophet of God to rejoice, it would have been what we've seen in these first three chapters of this book, as God was showcasing his mercy all around. Could you imagine if there was this added section of Acts chapter 2 that recorded some Debbie Downer who was just bummed out about the thousands of people that were saved after Peter's sermon at Pentecost? Could you imagine if hundreds of people in our church got saved in the years to come, but people were still walking around the halls with shoulders slouched and heads hung low, longing for the good old days? That's what's happening here with Jonah. He has a bad case, a terrible case of misplaced priorities. The proper response, the normal response, the expected response to an entire city, an exceedingly wicked city, repenting would have been to, to shout with praise and to lift up prayers of thanksgiving and to sing songs of joy. But that's not what we see here in verse 1. Instead, what we see is Jonah here in about as deep a funk as humanly imaginable. But he doesn't just have the blues. He's not just depressed. No, he's angry. It greatly displeased Jonah. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. Again, is the literal Hebrew there. And not only that, he became angry. Those words, he became angry, they literally say he became hot. This isn't describing mere worry or, or irritation. This is describing fury. Jonah's burning with rage. He's, he's hot under the collar. He's violently angry. And with who? Well, ultimately with God. He's angry with God for sparing Nineveh. Now that alone deserves a sermon. To be angry with God over anything that happens in our life, that deserves a sermon on itself. It's, it's problematic. But why? Why was Jonah's anger here toward God so great? Well, I think there are actually two related reasons. First, Jonah had this patriotic streak. He had true nationalistic fervor for his people and for his nation, Israel. You can even see it back in that passage I read earlier from Jonah 1.9, where he's in front of the sailors, and you can picture him sort of straightening up his posture and puffing out his chest and saying, I am a Hebrew. Well, he was a Hebrew, but he was a Haino, a Hebrew in name only. The term is mine, but it's derived from, from simply looking at his life and his track record as it's recorded in this book. So, so part of his anger was his zeal for Israel. He really did want to, and I hope this doesn't step on any toes, make Israel great again. But he didn't want to see, because of his great love for Israel, God show his compassion or his favor on any other peoples, on any other nations, which in and of itself is quite bizarre. And it highlights Jonah's bad theology. Because what did God say to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3? In you, all the families of the nations will be blessed. So Jonah had this patriotic streak for Israel. That was one of the reasons he was angry that, that favor was being shown anybody but Israel. But not only that, and this is second, Jonah knew what a threat the nation of Assyria was. Nineveh, we've seen, was, was this, the capital city of that nation during Jonah's time. And, and it is not outside the bounds of possibility that Jonah knew from some of his contemporary prophets, prophets like Hosea and Amos, that the nation of Assyria would eventually become Israel's destroyer. That Assyria would one day be that instrument that God would use to bring about judgment and calamity on his own people. In other words, Jonah knew that this nation, this foreign nation, was this invader that was going to cause destruction. And his displeasure, his anger stemmed from the fact that, as, as he saw it, of all the peoples on the nation, on the planet, of all the, the peoples on the planet, to spare and to reprieve and to show compassion toward the Ninevites... They weren't it. Why would God show compassion to the very people group who would one day take down the apple of his eye? Jonah was not only confused about all of it, he was greatly displeased. Not only was he greatly displeased, he was angered. He became angry. He was infuriated with God. Which is why the next words of this narrative 
beginning in uh, verse 2 come as a bit of a surprise, a, a real surprise. After learning that Jonah was greatly displeased and angry, we're next told that he prayed. He prayed. Now, what we'd expect to see is probably not prayer in light of displeasure and anger like this. This is not the greatest frame of mind for a man like Jonah to, to begin praying. But that's what it says. He, he prayed. Look at verses 2 and 3. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Now, there are a number of things to mention right here at the outset about this prayer. Uh, This was a prayer in the sense that it involved a person who is not God, Jonah, lifting up his voice to God and pleading with God and petitioning God. So this was definitionally a, a prayer. But when we drill down further, we see that these words of Jonah went beyond being a mere prayer and instead were more like a complaint. They're they're more along the lines of what we see Jeremiah doing. Jeremiah 12, verse 1, the prophet there says, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? So that was a prophetic complaint from Jeremiah. This is somewhat what Jonah's doing here along the lines of what we see Habakkuk doing. In Habakkuk 1, 2, and 3, it says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? And then Jonah's prayer here is along the lines of what we see David doing in Psalm 13, uh, verses 1 and 2, where he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be be exalted over me? But Jonah's words, they're different than those three. In his prayer to the Lord, Jonah goes further than the the prayers of Jeremiah and and Habakkuk and David. And that he, he goes on, Jonah does, to chastise the Lord, to rebuke the Lord, to, to essentially say to the Lord, I know better than you, and I told you so. In fact, look at the first few words of Jonah's prayer in verse 2. He says, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? He might as well have said there, please, Lord, can't you see that I knew better than you all along? That's the, the loose translation of what he's saying here. And note something else about this prayer. Note the focus of Jonah's prayer. This is not one of those great are you and greatly to be praised are you God type of prayers. No, this prayer is littered with first person statements. Was not this what I said? Well, I was still in my own country. The focus of Jonah's prayer, in other words, was Jonah. This was a me, myself, and I prayer. This wasn't a prayer of humble prostration. This was a a prayer of self-deification. And I know better than God type of prayer. Jonah truly believed that he was in the right and he believed that God was in the wrong and he had the audacity to say that to God in his prayer. This is an example of what one commentator I read last week calls spiritual infantile regression. Spiritual infantile regression where the man of God who is supposed to be speaking for God to deliver the steak and to serve up the meat is in reality a two-faced spiritual infant who has no idea who God truly is and has no idea what he's talking about. Spiritual infantile regression. So Jonah begins the prayer with these words, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was in my own country, which was Jonah, in essence, saying, I I know that you are forgiving God, and, and now look what has happened. I told you so. Now look at the admission that comes in the next part of the prayer. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Now that's quite the admission. All along, going back to Jonah 1.1, we've wondered why Jonah disobeyed God's initial command to go to Nineveh. Well, here's why. He admits it in his prayer. He admits to God in his prayer that he was trying to, he was designing to forestall this, meaning he wanted to block 
the Ninevites' repentance. He wanted to prevent God, as though he could, from ultimately relenting. In other words, he didn't want the Ninevites to be spared from judgment. He wanted them to face judgment, which is really interesting, especially when we think back to Jonah's own prayer when he was in the, the, the belly of the fish in Jonah 2, 2, where he himself was very eager to be delivered from his own calamity. Look at Jonah 2, 2, his prayer. It says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. So apparently what was good for the goose was not good for the gander. Jonah was perfectly fine with himself being spared from calamity, but he didn't want to see the Ninevites spared. So Jonah, this clear object of God's compassion and mercy, had no compassion for this once wicked city of Nineveh. He didn't want the inhabitants of that city to receive mercy. What a guy. Well, as we read on through his petulant prayer here, we see that if his goal in praying this way was to prevent the Ninevites from receiving God's compassion and mercy and forgiveness, if that was his goal, he had, he had good reason to be concerned in light of what he knew about certain key truths pertaining to God and his character. Look at the, the next part of uh, verse 2, part of the prayer here. It says, For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, normally, what a true child of God will do in worshiping the Lord and praying to the Lord is pray God's attributes back to the Lord in praise. That's not what we see here, though. These are not words of praise from Jonah. Rather, these are words of rebuke. I mean, the words here on our printed Bible pages, they look a little dispassionate and beige, considering the the real context here. Because what is happening here is Jonah is on a tirade. This is a really disturbing scene where this prophet of God is going off on God and in doing so is using God's own attributes against him. Jonah clearly had a grasp on God's character. Jonah 4.2, where he says, where he talks about God being gracious and compassionate. Those are almost verbatim quote of, of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 which says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Jonah's words in this prayer also echo one of his contemporaries, Joel. Joel 2.13 and 14 says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Jonah's words of prayer here sound similar to Psalm 103, 8 and 9. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And last, they sound like Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. In other words, Jonah wasn't unaware of the person of God. He wasn't ignorant of the character of God. Quite the contrary, he was very much aware of and very familiar with the person and the nature and the character of God. He knew that God was gracious, meaning God expresses benevolence to the undeserving. He knew that God is compassionate, merciful, understanding, tender, like a mother to her child. He knew that God was slow to anger, long-suffering. We think of 2 Peter 3, 9, that he's not wishing for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance He knew that God was abundant in loving kindness, that he is faithful and in his covenant-keeping hesed love. And last, Jonah knew that God was a God who relents concerning calamity, which is exactly what we see him doing with the Ninevites up in verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw their deeds, it says, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. In other words, Jonah had a first-rate theoretical knowledge of the nature and the character of God. If they had had seminaries in Jonah's day, he would have passed the Who is God course with flying colors. And it was because Jonah knew who God is that he knew that God would be willing to forgive any repentant sinners there in Nineveh. But Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to know about that God. 
And Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to know mercy and compassion and forgiveness from God. He had preached to those Ninevites of their impending doom. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But apparently the message he had preached was hollow. He didn't mean it. It wasn't heartfelt. He really didn't want to see Nineveh repent. He really didn't want to see God forgive them. Now I'm sure there are many of us here tonight who can in some way relate to Jonah here in that we know something of that disconnect between the theoretical knowledge of God and practical living in light of that theoretical or theological knowledge. See, knowing that God is omniscient, that he knows all things, that's a comforting thought when you're being obedient to him and you're being faithful to him and when you're waiting on him for, for guidance and direction about that next step or next direction that you think he might be leading you in life. But knowing that God is omniscient at the same time is a terrifying thought. When you're caught in a pattern of sexual sin or, or in a cycle of ungodly thinking, knowing that God is immutable, unchanging, is a comforting thought. When you think of all all the wickedness that's happening out there in the world and how God's views on on that wickedness, whether it be adultery or homosexuality or sexual immorality or divorce or lying or drunkenness, his views haven't changed. But knowing that God is immutable, unchanging, is also a frightening thought when you're holding on to some unrepentant pattern of sin in your life. Because you're then reminded that just as the Lord is unchanging in his hatred of the wicked, that the wickedness that's being practiced out there, he's also unchanging in his hatred of the wickedness that you're holding on to in your heart. And bringing it back closer to Jonah's situation here, knowing that God is gracious, knowing that God is compassionate, knowing that God is slow to anger, knowing that God is abounding in loving kindness, those are comforting thoughts for us when we apply them to our own situations and our own hearts and our own salvation, it's very easy for us to rattle off Psalm 86, 15 and say, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And we think to me, but what happens in your heart when you hear the story of some undesirable in your life, someone who hurt you in your past, laying claim to the same promises of God which you hold to so near and dear to your heart. The boss who fired you, the girl who dumped you, the worker who cheated you, the man who abused you, the husband who left you, the elected official who disappointed you. Are you as eager to hear a story from someone like that saying that they are now in the same family of God to which you belong and that they now believe in the same gospel that you believe and they've repented of their sins and put their faith in the same Christ that you have put your faith in? Is it harder for you to hear that someone like that may have been rescued and saved by God than it would be to hear that some random person on the street got saved? That's the situation Jonah found himself in. He feared that each of these attributes of God, which to him at some point had been a comfort to his own soul, would now be extended to this group of individuals he despised, the Ninevites from that nation that God was going to use to defeat and haul off his people, the Israelites, into captivity. So Jonah was not only confused by God's actions, he was not only questioning God's actions, but he was greatly displeased with God's actions. We've seen verse one, even angry with God's actions. And and here he's being so foolishly bold as to rebuke God for his actions by using God's own attributes against him. And Jonah here is saying, I know who you are, God, and isn't it just like you to act this way? He was disgusted. And so deep was his anguish, Jonah's anguish, and his disgust over the thought that the Ninevites might repent and receive the mercy of God and be spared by God that he issues this request, closing out his prayer in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. So back in Jonah 2, in his prayer from the stomach of the great fish, Jonah's begging God to spare his life. Jonah too. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish and said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. But now in Jonah 4, 
He's not getting his way because the Ninevites had repented, God had relented, and now he's asking God in these concluding words of his prayer to take his life. What a drama queen. Now, this wasn't the first time a prophet of God asked God to take his life. Back in the early days of Israel, in the period of the wilderness wandering, Moses asked Yahweh for an early death. The context there was the Israelites complaining about all the manna they're eating. This is Numbers chapter 11 and how sick of the manna they were and when will we finally eat meat? And Moses, as their leader, was fed up with it. Numbers eleven thirteen records Moses crying out to Yahweh this way. He says, where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, this is Moses talking to God, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Moses, in other words, was burdened with all the grumbling and the complaining by his own people, the Israelites, and he was ready to be taken out by Yahweh. And then there's the story of Elijah. He had just finished showing up the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. He's now on the run from wicked King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel. And he finally comes to this place where he can rest under a juniper tree. And he makes this similar request of God in 1 Kings 19. It says, now Ahab, 1 Kings 19.1, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, she's threatening his life. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Elijah's request, many surmise, came from a place of despondency. Spiritual weightiness, spiritual heaviness, thinking I I haven't measured up. I, I thought I did a great thing in slaying the prophets of the false gods, but maybe I'm not measuring up. Well, what Moses experienced, what Elijah experienced, was nothing like what Jonah was going through here in our text. Jonah wasn't merely tired in the Lord's work. He wasn't some faithful servant of Yahweh who had had enough. No, his request to die was brought about by selfishness and bitterness and anger and rage. Jonah wanted what he wanted, and when he didn't get what he wanted, he wanted to take his ball and go home. In adult terms, he wanted to die. And in fact, so insistent was he, yet again on getting his own way, that Jonah would make this request not just one time, actually three times. There's one in, in Jonah 4.8, just down the page. We'll get to this next week where it says, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. That's one. The other is when he, we mentioned earlier, when he begged to be thrown into the sea. So in four chapters, three times he's asked to die. Buttoning all of this up. Because God relented of his wrath and and did not destroy the city of Nineveh. Jonah was so disappointed, so angry, so filled with rage that he lost all reason for living. To Jonah, it it was better to die and leave this earth than to live and see the Ninevites repent. Jonah was saying here to God that God could go ahead and save those Ninevites, but if he did save those wicked sinners, it was gonna be over Jonah's dead body. All right, that was verses one through three. That was Jonah's petulant prayer. Now as we turn to verse four, we see God's reaction to Jonah's prayer. Here in verse four, if you're a note taker, this would be God's interested inquiry. His interested inquiry. Look at verse four. It says, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now note, this is the the third time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The first was in God's initial call to Jonah to go to Nineveh back at the beginning of chapter 1. The second was God's second call to Jonah to go to Nineveh at the beginning of chapter 3. And then now here in Jonah 4.4, we see that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a third time. And you see the words there. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now, this certainly is not the only time that we see in the scriptures 
God using the, the tool of the question to get to a person's mind and their heart and, and their way of thinking. God asked questions of Adam and Eve. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? God asked questions of Cain. Where is Abel, your brother? What have you done? After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed, Nathan asked David a question, which really was a question from God. This is in 2 Samuel 12, 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? God asked Isaiah a question. In Isaiah 6, 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Jesus, the son of God. Ask Judas, his betrayer, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So questions are an effective way that that God has used over the centuries to get to the heart of those he's addressing. But back to Jonah here, God's response to ask Jonah a question like that, do you have reason, good reason to be angry, in this context is startling. It's surprising. And it's startling and it's surprising in light of the anger and the vitriol which Jonah had thrown God's way in his so-called prayer. Because of how disrespectful and disobedient and angry Jonah had been in that prayer, God had every right to strike Jonah dead in response. In fact, God had dealt with disobedient prophets in, in harsh ways, harsher ways in the past. For instance, in 1 Kings 13, we're told about this disobedient prophet who God allows to be killed by a lion. Jonah could have faced that fate. But not, that's not what happens. God didn't give him over to that fate. Instead, he asks them a question. Do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah was angry because his own will didn't prevail over God's will. In other words, he was angry that he wasn't getting his own way. So God asks him, is it right? Is it right for you to be angry? And of course, the implied answer, the obvious answer is no. It's never right. It's never good to angrily question what God does because his will is perfect and his ways are perfect and his ways are far beyond our ways. But it's not just that God asked Jonah this question rather than striking him dead that that stands out in this passage. It's also the tone of the question that he asked Jonah. This question is as tame in our Bibles, our English Bibles, as you see it in the original Hebrew. God here is not scolding Jonah or mocking Jonah with this question. He's not being combative or reproachful toward Jonah with this question. This is a straightforward, cut and dried question. The question being, do you, Jonah, have any valid grounds for objecting to me showing mercy and compassion, not only to you, Jonah, which I have, but to the Ninevites? God here, in other words, is being remarkably measured with his question. He's both gently and firmly attempting to, to bring Jonah to this place where he sees the error of his ways and how bad his theology is and to get his thinking straight. As one commentator puts it, Yahweh's initial reaction to Jonah's rebellious resignation is a positively tender kindness, which sets about bringing the sulky Jonah to a proper self-examination. Well, that was the intent of God's question here, to bring the sulky Jonah to a proper self-examination. But as we're going to see, Jonah wasn't interested in doing that. He wasn't interested in in going through his self-examination. He wanted to keep sulking. And that brings us to our third and final point for this evening. We've seen his petulant prayer. That was verses one through three. We've seen God's interested inquiry in verse four. Now in verse five, we see Jonah's sulking squat. Jonah's sulking squat. Verse 5 says, Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Now, as we just saw in verse 4, God asked him a question. Do you have good reason to be angry? Do you have right to be angry? But notice Jonah didn't answer the question. He didn't answer the question. So blinded By his own selfishness and anger was Jonah that he left God hanging. He just took off. It says, then Jonah went out from the city, verse 5, and sat east of it. Now, as we've already seen in our study of this book, it took two distinct calls from God to get Jonah finally to the place where he would answer God's call and go to Nineveh in the first place. It took him two times. We saw it in both chapter 1 and in chapter 3. 
And now with the Ninevites having been called to repent through Jonah's own preaching, and now having, having seen the Ninevites actually repent, Jonah had seen enough. As soon as he had come to Nineveh, as long as it took him to get there, he was gone. Now, upon his arrival to Nineveh, back in chapter 3, he likely had entered Nineveh through the the western gates, as his original travels would have taken him in a a west-to-east direction. And now, having seen what he saw, having preached, having complained to God, having heard God's question, and now having completely ignored God's question, he ducked out of Nineveh through its eastern gate. That's why it says here he sat east of it. He came in through the west, left through the east, and sat east of it. And then, once he was outside the city... We're told in verse 5 that Jonah made a shelter for himself. And that would have been a crude shelter, likely made up of mud and bricks and maybe some tree branches for a roof. And, and it says he sat under it in the shade. He made himself comfortable, in other words. He was seated. He was shaded. If they had him back then, he probably would have had a lazy boy, a little mini fridge, just to stay comfortable and cool. But again, the whole point here is this was Jonah doing things Jonah's way making sure that he was content, making sure that he was comfortable, not at all motivated by doing what God had commanded him to do. And then we see this interesting language at the end of verse 5. We're told that Jonah perched himself in this little shaded hideout, it says, until he could see what would happen in the city. And we have to ask, why in the world would he do that? Hadn't Nineveh already repented? Hadn't God already relented. So what was there to see? What was the show all about? Well, apparently Jonah believed that through the prayer he prayed earlier here in chapter four and the complaints he had lodged that God might change his mind to bend to Jonah's wishes and ultimately judge and punish and destroy Nineveh after all. Jonah's condescending and disobedient thought process here was, well, maybe God will finally see the error of his ways and see it my way, and finally judge and destroy this this wicked city. Sick with pride, Jonah still believed that God might submit his divine will to Jonah's. And sick with anger and hatred toward the Ninevites, Jonah wanted a nice view of it all. He wanted to sit outside the city walls and watch these people in Nineveh go through a Sodom and Gomorrah-like event of destruction and judgment. As they, Jonah hoped, Face the fire and brimstone of God's wrath. Well, at the outset of the evening, this evening's message, I did mention that the frustrating unpredictability of Jonah. Not only the book of Jonah, but, but Jonah himself. He really is all over the place, isn't he? In chapter one, he's one guy. In chapter two, he's another guy. Chapter three, he's another guy. In chapter four, it seems like he's back to chapter one and, and even worse. It really is difficult to to follow the bouncing ball of the question, which Jonah are we dealing with? Well, this would be one of those moments where we, studying a book like this all these years later as Christian believers, maybe don't need to focus so much on the bouncing ball of Jonah's life, but really take stock of our lives and our hearts and to evaluate the ways where we can be, if we're not careful, like Jonah. Does it take you one two, maybe three times to respond to the clear commands of God's word, the words that God has given you? Well, then you might have some Jonah in you. Do you find yourself being oblivious to the ways that your sin bring about calamity and danger and hurt to others? You might have some Jonah in you. Do you posture in front of others based on your external religious affiliation For Jonah, it was, I'm a Hebrew. For us, it might be, I come from a Christian family, or I attend Indian Hills. Well, then you might have some Jonah in you. Do you present yourself as a poor witness for the God you claim to represent to the watching unbelievers around you? Then you might have some Jonah in you. Do you preach messages you ultimately don't believe? Then you might have some Jonah in you. Do you pray me, myself, and I prayers. And you might have some Jonah in you. Do you become displeased or angry with God when he shows compassion and mercy to those whom you think are undeserving? Well, then you've got some Jonah in you. Do you ask for easy escapes 
from difficult situations. Oh, Lord, take my life from me. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And you might have some Jonah in you. Do you ignore the counsel and guidance of the Lord? As Jonah did when he ignored God's question in Jonah 4.4. And you might have some Jonah in you. Do you sit in judgment over God's judgments? And you might have some Jonah in you. One more, then I'm done. Do you sulk and do you pout when you ask God for something and you don't get your way? Then you might have some Jonah in you. Jonah was not only a running rebel. He was a pouting prophet. Don't be like Jonah. Those are my parting words for you all this evening. Don't be like Jonah. Don't set Jonah as the example in any way of how you want to conduct yourselves in this life as the people of God. Just remember that we serve and we worship the one who identified himself as one who is greater than Jonah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 12, 41, he is our answer. He is our example. We are to walk as he walked. May we do so faithfully today, this week, every day of our lives. Let's pray. God, I thank you once again for the timelessness and the precious nature of your word. Thank you that we can go so far back in time to a different world, really, different land, a different people group, and put ourselves in in the shoes of a man like Jonah and try to understand what he was doing and what he was dealing with and and the heart-level sin that he was battling and we really have a warning passage here as, as to, to, to ways of life and manners of life that we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ ought not to partake in and, and ought not to indulge. So I pray that would be the takeaway lesson for tonight, God, that we would look for those ways, those pockets of disobedience and rebellion that we see in the prophet Jonah and we flee from them, steer clear of them, Realizing that the only reason and the only way that we can do so is by the power of your spirit working in us for we who have believed upon the name of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the shed blood of your son, which provides us with hope, which provides us with eternal life, and ultimately which provides us with the strength to live upright and godly lives. May we do so this week, all for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.